When I was informed about this week's scripture reading, Jason and I sat down to discuss the text, and a question came out of that discussion. I asked, what does Paul mean circumcision is not physical? Jason, being the ever-appropriate and always full of couth pastor, responded by saying, we have 15 boys in our confirmation class this year. I think that they, you and I, would agree that circumcision is, a, is as about is about as physical as it gets. In the fall of 2011, when I arrived on the campus of Wesley Theological Seminary, I was forced against my will to enter into a covenant. As part of a class titled Spiritual Formation for the Practice of Ministry, a class I cynically referred to as my three-hour weekly waste of time in the district, I entered into a covenant with six other seminary students. I could not have made up the makeup of this group. There was Chris, an army computer analyst who pushed back against everything that our professor said. Oki, an Air Force chaplain candidate who was glued to his cell phone at all times. Sharon, the director of religion and faith programs at the Human Rights Campaign. Melvin, a licensed local pastor from Baltimore who was more opinionated than Jason and more long-winded than Steve Larkin. There was Monica, a stay-at-home mom who really needed to cut back on her caffeine intake. Tara, whose definition of a bad grade was an A-, and me, the State Department contractor who was thus just there to get his class credit and didn't mind an A-. These were people that I would have never spent time with outside of class. But here we were, assigned to the same group for the rest of the year. We promised to pray with one another, to serve the community together, and to help carry one another through our first year in seminary. The touchy-feely side of me, which is not as large as, or as developed as many of you might think, thought, oh, this is really nice. It'll be great to have a group of partners to walk this journey with me. And then there was the cynical side of me who thought, oh great, here goes another three hours of my week that I'm not going to get back. Covenants are part of our Methodist heritage. John Wesley encouraged members of the early Methodist movement to meet regularly in Methodist class meetings. They would confess their sins to one another, pray together, and be healed together. And this is where the early leaders of the Methodist movement were nurtured and equipped. The Old and New Testaments are a collection of covenant stories. In these stories, in these stories, we learn of leaders within Israel who were nurtured and equipped by God for the call that had been placed upon them. The Abrahamic covenant promised land, descendants, and prosperity. Exodus 19 tells us that if the Israel, Israelites could simply obey God's voice and keep God's covenant, that they would be, quote, a treasured possession out of all the peoples. The Davidic covenant established David's house, his throne, and a kingdom. And then there's this new covenant, which was, which was established to create a new relationship between God and humans. This new covenant was different. This new covenant was mediated by Christ. This new covenant was not limited only to the nation of Israel. Jews and Gentiles would now be blessed and protected. From front to back, the Bible is a covenant story. And that is where our scripture reading brings us today. Then what is the advantage that the Jew has? What is the value of circumcision? 
These questions are precisely what Paul wants us to get to the bottom of. And for us reading the text today through our 21st century Christian lenses, it would be very easy for us to assume that the answer is none, that there is no advantage. Circumcision was not about getting in or staying in God's favor. Circumcision meant that those who were already in God's favor would be identified. If circumcision was meant to separate Israel from the rest of the nations, a physical mark of their covenant with God, where does this fit into the new covenant that was established through Christ? And Paul doesn't sidestep the question. He takes it head on. In verse 2, he says that Israel had been entrusted with the oracles of God, a.k.a. the scriptures. These oracles had been written down long ago by the generations of Abraham, Moses, and David. And they were for the future use of other generations. But who were these generations? Paul, the Gentile church, and then us. As N.T. Wright says, the covenant was there to put to right, to deal with evil and restore God's justice and order the cosmos. Since September 9th, our confirmants have been in covenant with one another and with you all. And I bet most of you here didn't know that we as a congregation entered into that covenant. By joining our confirmation class, our confirmants covenanted to attend and actively participate in worship monthly. Attend weekly lessons, missing no more than three classes all year. And to attend an end-of-the-year retreat. That was their end of the deal. And in exchange, our teachers, Sarah Lynn, Haley, and Patty, along with our high school mentors, agreed to teach them and share with them the oracles of God. And as a congregation, we covenanted to help them by teaching them the faith. That's why Jay Stedman didn't mind when a group of loud and obnoxious 6th, 7th, and 8th graders came bursting through the doors into his Sunday school class. And that's why you, the congregation, didn't get angry when the same group of kids would approach you as you were getting a cup of coffee and ask you personal questions about your faith. That was our end of the deal. Israel had been entrusted by God. And through these covenants... They were guaranteed prosperity and protection. All they had to do was share the oracles of God with future generations. But what really transpired in the gap between these generations? Was Israel faithful? Israel was called to be a faithful servant of God, to obey God's laws, and to be a light to the other nations. That was the purpose of the Torah. The Torah was intended to enable Israel with the ability to preserve these oracles and to be a light. For some, it became more important, or it was just simply easier, to fulfill the requirements of the Torah law rather than keeping and preserving the oracles which they, as a nation, had been entrusted. For some, it was just easier to keep an outward appearance of their faith. But Israel, as a nation, had been unfaithful, and Paul knew this better than anyone else. And our confirmants can tell you why. Grant, do you want to tell them why? Or do you want me to? Me? Okay. (laughs) Before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And Saul was a Jewish Pharisee who painstakingly persecuted the early church. Through these persecutions, Paul was in fact violating the oracles and laws that he, as a Jew, had been chosen to preserve. Israel had been charged by God 
to be an example of how to live for future generations. What Paul is saying here in chapter 3 is that Israel had in fact been unfaithful. And Paul doesn't mean that Israel had lost its faith in God or simply became a band of unbelievers. Israel had been unfaithful to God's commission. Paul even goes as far as to use Israel's own stories to explain their unfaithfulness. This section of chapter 3 in his letter to the Romans, Paul's not writing down new ideas. This is nothing new. He simply uses what David had written in Psalm 51. This is the same theme that is scattered throughout 2 Samuel. Paul quotes the Psalms and, and points to what vindication Israel could have rightly suffered as a sinful nation. No reader of this letter who was familiar with the Psalms would have failed to miss the unquoted verses within the themes of chapter 3. There's no escaping God's righteousness. David knew this. Saul knew this. And the readers of Paul's letter knew it as well. A covenant relationship only works if both parties enter into the agreement knowing they're in it for the long haul. This is one of the basic premises of marriage. Believe it or not, my wife Allison did not marry me because I am the perfect example of what a husband is supposed to be. I know, it's hard to believe. (laughs) We do not marry our spouses and become partners with them because we know that they are without flaw or are perfect. The covenant group that I was forced to join during my first week at Wesley did not kick me out of the group if I was unable to meet the promises that we made to one another. If one of our confirmands was unable to meet the requirements of our confirmation class or began to show signs of disinterest, Sarah Lynn, Haley, and Patty wouldn't kick them out of the class or wouldn't kick them out of the class or banish them from the group. These punishments might seem justified to you or appropriate to some. But that's not what the point of entering into a covenant relationship is all about. When we read the stories of the Old and New Testament, we see Israel's unfaithfulness to God's commission. And it would be easy for us to assume that Israel would receive a just punishment from God. That God would judge Israel as a nation because the covenant was built upon a nation and not individuals. And the entire nation would then be condemned for their unfaithfulness. But you see, that's really not how grace works. And what God does is open this new covenant to all, to Jews and to Gentiles. This new covenant was open and available to everyone. And it's about a way in which that God addresses our unfaithfulness through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. After all, this is what the covenant was intended to do in the first place. Our unfaithfulness, our rejection of the covenant does not separate us from God. My sins and your sins do not keep us away from God. This covenant with God did not mean that the early church, the Christians who had met Jesus on the road to Damascus and broke bread with him, did not have doubts. A covenant with God does not mean that we are certain about our beliefs, have no doubts, or know everything there is to know about the Bible. This covenant does not require us to know everything about being kind or virtuous. It's actually not about us at all. What it is about, what this covenant is about, is about us playing an active role in what God is doing in the world. This is what Paul is getting at when he says that true circumcision is not something external or physical. In the last verses of chapter 2, Paul says, A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. This means that we can have all of the outward signs of faith that we want. You can have as many Jesus 
fish on the back of your minivan. You can have as many bumper stickers as you want. You can wear a cross around your neck. You can show up to church every Sunday without fail. You can participate in every small group that a church has to offer. But if you have not opened your heart to be marked by the Holy Spirit, then it's all for nothing. Last weekend, Sarah Lynn Haley, Patty, and I had a chance to go camping with our confirmation class. We braved rustic cabins, spiders that were the size of elephants, no cell phone service, technology glitches, and a few weird howls in the middle of the night to open ourselves up to be marked by God. We gathered to learn what it means to grow, give, serve, and share as a follower of Christ. We learn that it's through growing, giving, serving, and sharing that our hearts are circumcised and marked by God. On Sunday morning, just as we were getting ready to leave and head back home to the soccer and lacrosse games that awaited us, I told our confirmants that if they were unwilling to do so, if they were unwilling to allow God to work through them and their confirmation vows, then the entire year will have been for nothing. If our confirmants were there simply to check off a box on their life bucket list, never again to seek out what the oracles of God will speak to them, never again to doubt or wrestle with God, or to open themselves up to have God write on their hearts again, then their time in confirmation since September, the entire year, will have been for nothing. Because it's when our hearts are marked by the Holy Spirit that we cannot be separated from God. Even through our doubts, questions, unfaithfulness, and all of our sins. It's when our hearts are circumcised by our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are made one with God and cannot be separated. It's not an outward symbol. It's not physical. And it's what keeps us connected with God through our unfaithfulness. Amen.